This series contains adult language and descriptions of graphic violence throughout. Listener discretion is advised. Cavalry Audio. On December 27, 1982, the body of Gary Smith was discovered stuffed between the mattress and box spring of a bed in a small motel room in Bergen County, New Jersey. The body had been poisoned and then, inexplicably, strangled. According to federal investigators, Mr. Smith was a small-time mafioso with two known associates who were more heavily connected to the New Jersey mob, Daniel Deppner and Richard Kuklinski. That second name there, Kuklinski, you may recognize, although he's better known as the Iceman, the notorious mafia killer for hire who by this time had been an active hitman in the game for over 25 years. From Cavalry Audio, I'm Brandon Morgan, and this is The Devil Within. You can run on for a long time, run for a long time, run on for a long time. Sooner or later, gonna cut you down. Sooner or later, gotta cut you down. This is episode six, The Road Not Taken. The three men, Kuklinski, Deppner, and Smith, were partners in a car theft ring, which they operated outside of normal mafia supervision. Which meant there was no support from the family, but there was also no one to answer to. So if Kuklinski determined that someone needed to get whacked, he just did it. No permission needed, no toes to worry about stepping on. So when he decided that Smith could no longer be trusted, he and Deppner laced Smith's hamburger with cyanide one day, and waited so they could watch him die. It took longer than Kuklinski thought it would, so he had Deppner strangle Smith with a lamp cord in the motel room where they were having lunch. When the wheelman they hired had car trouble, they figured that since they couldn't transport the body to a suitable dumping ground, they should just conceal the body in the bed and get the hell out of there. Barely five months later, a cyclist making his way down a beautiful, if desolate, stretch of road just off the Hamburg Turnpike noticed a large turkey vulture just a few yards into the woods. Closer inspection revealed that the vulture was feasting on the partially concealed body of Daniel Deppner, the other former associate of the Iceman. Apparently, Kuklinski determined that Deppner's questionable loyalty outweighed his utility, and an additional personnel change was needed. Kuklinski had always enjoyed his drives into the woods of North Jersey to take his family horseback riding in a small town called West Milford. He particularly enjoyed his time surrounded by the majesty of nature as he made his way along Clinton Road. He would often smile, not at the antics of his young children playing in the backseat of his Cadillac, but because of how proud he was of himself for having discovered the perfect spot to dump a body. The woods are lovely, dark and deep. Kuklinski was eventually arrested as the result of a multi-agency undercover sting operation. Once convicted, jailed, and thoroughly convinced that he would never again be a free man, he spoke openly about his career as a hitman. He also betrayed the locations of several of his victims while also taking credit for crimes that had gone unsolved. Included among these was Daniel Deppner. When it was revealed that the body in the woods off Clinton Road 
was in fact a victim of the most prolific mafia hitman of all time, it caused a morbid fascination with that lonely stretch of asphalt and reignited interest in Cross Castle, ghost stories, and of course, the monster in the woods. But that's not all. The news of the mafioso buried in the forest also happened to immediately precede the unanticipated rise in the practice of satanic worship in the area. And as we all now understand, the one thing a coven of occultists needs more than anything is a nice, isolated forest. And so the case could be made that if not for Kuklinski finding the woods off Clinton Road a suitable area to dispose of Deppner's body, a whole generation of kids from Jefferson may not have even known about the strange stories, the ghostly encounters, and the castle ruins so close to their hometown. Further, if that section of wilderness hadn't been on national news described as perfectly remote and eerily quiet, then perhaps it wouldn't have caught the fancy of weekend warrior Satanists looking for exactly such a place. Then maybe, just maybe, a young boy named Tommy Sullivan could have been able to avoid his terrible fate. But it wasn't to be. Interest in Clinton Road had been reignited, and it was being visited and explored by a growing number of Satan worshippers, as well as local high school kids looking for a good scare or a secluded place to make out. However, Of all the newcomers to the woods, only one arrived with an ancient knowledge and a secret purpose. Tommy Sullivan didn't know it, but he had two major forces working against him that December night, the night of his second visit to Clinton Road. And those forces were the skeptical mind of an academic and the innocent heart of the young. But before we fully investigate what happened in December and ultimately January, we have to understand the events that led up to it beginning with Thanksgiving. We can now look at the whole story armed fully with the information required to reach a possible conclusion that considers all the evidence, connects all the dots, and hopefully answers all the questions. The nature of investigative science reveals that the most elegant answer, the more perfect explanation, is the one which relies on the least amount of assumptions, no matter how extraordinary the results happen to be. Thanksgiving 1987. Let's remember, briefly, how Tommy Sullivan was thought of in late November. Tommy was just a normal kid. I mean, he's our paper boy. I mean, you know, for somebody who was going to commit a satanic murder, I mean, they were at 5 o'clock mass at St. Thomas that night. Yeah. Um, Again, nothing out of the ordinary. Um, Family seemed to be a nice enough family. I'm going to call it your your typical all-American family. Um, parents seemed normal, kids seemed absolutely normal. He had a younger brother, if I remember correctly. And so again, nothing would ever jump out where at you if you're driving by the house that you would think, oh boy, you know, something weird or abnormal. Not at all. In fact, I think I remember they were even members of our church, which is St. Thomas the Apostle Church. So again, everything appeared to be the all-American family, just like... Tommy actually went to Reverend Brown, which is the Catholic school in Sparta, the town next door. They just seemed like a normal family. Pretty normal kid. Uh, Catholic school. Um, all area wrestler, if I remember correctly. Um, well liked. Uh, was definitely not on anybody's radar that this kid would do 
something as horrific as he did and then go and kill himself the way he did. It's important to hear those words again because they're true. Tommy was those things. A good kid, thoughtful, pious, focused, and responsible. But his first step toward oblivion was about to present itself. We've gone over the Religions of the World school assignment issued by a mischievous Jesuit in training and the subsequent introduction to Lance. But let's look closer at what actually had to have transpired for Tommy to come to such a terrible end. According to records, the season's first snow had already fallen by the time Thanksgiving rolled around, a sure sign of a long, cold winter. Waiting for the bus outside of his house must have been a miserable, frigid affair for young Tommy. The 20-minute bus ride over Sparta Mountain probably wasn't much better. You'd go from multiple layers of sweaters and parkas to combat the cold, only to be stripped to shirt sleeves minutes later because the heat in the bus was cranked all the way up. Tommy probably spent this time the way other kids did, catching up on homework or studying. That is, if you could do those things in a moving vehicle without getting carsick. But this was during wrestling season, so Tommy had already been up for hours, and in all likelihood, he was studying up on the scouting report for whoever it was that had the misfortune to be across the mat from him in his next match. Once at school, it was his regular classes, except for an additional study hall. That privilege was reserved for athletes who were permitted to skip indoor PE, lest they sustain an injury that would keep them from competing in their sport. Such an injury was simply not to be tolerated. So for the months that Tommy wrestled, he had a little extra time to concentrate on his schoolwork, and his grades were a splendid reflection of this. Now enter Mr. Cavanaugh, if you recall he was Tommy's history teacher, and things start to move in a direction that no one could have seen coming. can't wait to get back to normal this summer. Barbecues and pool parties. That's what I love. That's what my kids love. It's what my neighborhood loves. Beating the summer heat with a refreshing dip in the pool. Can't wait. And if you want your brain to feel like it's summertime all the time, download Best Fiends. It makes my brain feel like it just took one of those refreshing dips in a cold pool. It activates the problem-solving regions in my brain. It makes me feel refreshed. I'm almost on level 70 now. And once I start playing, it's, it's honestly, it's kind of tough to put it down. The levels get harder and more engaging as I go. You need to make more connections to hit your goals. And I'm telling you, I live for those slugmageddons. Oh, it's like a cause for celebration. There's thousands of puzzles to solve. There's something new every day. And it's totally free to download. There's so much to love about this game. Give it a try and let me know if you love it as much as I do. Download the five-star rated puzzle game Best Fiends free today on the App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. When the weather gets warmer, the last thing I want to do is be all sweaty in my kitchen cooking over a flaming hot stove. No thanks. But also, I don't exactly want to order takeout for every meal. That's why I'm obsessed with Daily Harvest. Daily Harvest delivers delicious harvest bowls, flatbreads, smoothies, and more, all built on organic fruits and vegetables right to your door. It takes literally minutes to prepare, and I love knowing that the food I'm eating is actually good for me. Daily Harvest never uses preservatives, added sugar, or artificial anything. My personal favorite is the Daily Harvest Scoops. They're plant-based ice cream. Scoops is the perfect sweet treat, 
plus it's gluten and dairy-free. My personal favorite are their flatbreads. From the artichoke and spinach to the tomato basil or the pear and arugula, I've got to hide them in the freezer or my wife will eat them. She'll eat my flatbreads, but I can't touch her daily harvest smoothies. I mean, we'll figure it out. Stay cool, calm, and collected during the summer heat. Go to dailyharvest.com and enter code WITHIN to get up to $40 off your first box. That's code WITHIN for up to $40 off your first box at dailyharvest.com. Dailyharvest.com. The class started innocently enough with Mr. Cavanaugh laying out the unorthodox assignment and what he expected from each of his students. When it was Tommy's turn to pick a religion off the board, he chose Mormonism because, well, somewhere in his mind, he remembered seeing their commercials and knew that the phrase, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day something or other, was in their name. He knew the name Jesus Christ. He even felt that he had something of a relationship with him beyond what he was told he needed to have. Tommy thought deeply about many subjects, religion being one of the most prominent. And after serious consideration, he had found God to be an important and trusted presence in his life. He was ruminating on this when a brash voice from the back of the class announced, Satanism! No one turned to look to see who said it. No one needed to. It was Lance, that rare breed of kid who, through no fault of his own, was an outcast. But rather than shrink and try to hide from the world until that dreaded gulag of high school was over, he embraced it and augmented it with a style of dress and an air of dangerous charisma that made him interesting and confounding and, well, dangerous. But in a non-threatening way. Lance refused to be invisible, and he was always and only, loudly and shamelessly, himself. After some skillful debate about the merits of a Catholic school kid being permitted to write a paper on Satanism, Lance won, and all the kids had the long holiday weekend to write their papers. Now, we don't know who Lance actually was or where he lived. There are some clues in the redacted police report, references to Juvenile 1 being local, for instance. But then that creates an additional layer of confusion. Local to where? Local to Tommy? Or local to the school. Those are two very different communities separated by eight miles of mountain road. However, given the amount of time Tommy and Lance spent together, it can be assumed that Lance lived close to Tommy and maybe even rode the same bus to and from school. Plus, if you recall, they were both on the wrestling team, which meant, at the very least, they rode the same late bus back to Jefferson after practice every day. So it's safe to say they knew of each other. And when Lance was granted permission for his particular subject matter, it sparked a deeper and darker interest from Tommy. According to Detective Hart, teenage murderers who kill in the name of Satan are by and large the product of Christian families. Their introduction to the Antichrist comes early in life, at church. And that religious iconography and terrible weight of the threats to the immortal soul slowly become an obsession until... For the truly obsessed and deranged, they change sides and identify with the fallen angel. So it would be with Tommy Sullivan, but with one added wrinkle. The late European paganist named Richard Cross. Over the long Thanksgiving weekend of 1987, a seed was planted in Tommy. A seed that would soon sprout and quickly grow out of control. 
It seems that as Tommy and his new friend Lance were discussing their projects, Lance shared with Tommy his copy of the Satanic Bible, the book from which Lance would be basing his entire report. Again, it's unknown where this copy originated, but it's assumed it came from an acquaintance of Lance's older sister. What is also unknown, and far more frustrating in its unknowing, is how the next piece of information made its way to Tommy and Lance. What led them to the crates of books in the basement of the library? It's not necessarily the type of information that had to be delivered by a person, though that would have been the easiest. But that creates some disturbing questions. For instance, why would someone with knowledge of the existence of that reading material tell two 14-year-old kids where it all was? It seems incredibly dangerous and foolhardy, even by Jefferson standards. It's more likely that these two intelligent, inspired kids simply followed a trail of breadcrumbs on the microfiche machines. It's possible that by finding the right articles, filling in some obvious gaps, and getting a little lucky, that these kids could have figured out what could possibly be waiting for them in the basement, untouched for over 70 years. And they were right. But first they had to learn the name Richard Cross and visit his ghostly shell of a castle. We can assume it was early in the weekend that Lance first mentioned Clinton Road. The boys had, in all likelihood, agreed to meet at the new public library to work on their papers after wrestling practice the day after Thanksgiving. Lance, in his usual fanciful ruse of self-confidence, would have mentioned it in passing, secretly hoping it triggered a breathless response. You've been out there? Really? Or something to that effect. And that's exactly what he got from Tommy enthusiasm over the prospect of potentially crashing a satanic ritual in the woods on the edge of town. Lance would have known all about it through the braggadocious older man his sister was dating, and from whom he learned his current behavioral pattern. Though he didn't know the reason for the increased activity at this time of year, but we know. The solstice was approaching, one of the four most sacred dates on the pagan calendar. And once again, to be fair, Satanism and paganism are very different. They are different in classification, as well as being worlds apart in practice and intent with regard to worship. However, they do trespass upon each other's territory when spoken under the general classification of the occult. That being said, with Lance's advanced knowledge, if not an actual invitation, of activities at Clinton Road, and Tommy's apparent willingness to investigate such activities, it seems that the boys decided to make a late-night, secret reconnaissance mission to the woods surrounding Cross Castle and see what they could see. It was agreed that Lance would stay over Tommy's house on Saturday night, and once everyone was asleep, they would quietly leave the house and ride their bikes the six miles through the late autumn cold and hide out in the forest to try and catch a glimpse of some actual Satanists. It was, after all, late November. The holy month of December was just around the corner, and Lance was told that preparations for the pagan celebration of Yule would be in full swing. They were almost sure to see amazing sights. With the house asleep, the two boys quietly left out the back door, cut across the side yard to where they had stashed their bikes earlier, and set off into the night. They would have chosen, instead of Berkshire Valley Road, the less-traveled Cozy Lake Road to get out to Route 23 and the entrance to Clinton Road. And when I say less traveled. I mean that they knew to an absolute certainty that they wouldn't encounter another car the entire time. They quickly realized that as long as they didn't shine their flashlights off to the side, then they wouldn't be completely terrified at the sight of the deep and forbidding forest that they were surrounded by 
nearly the whole way. And remember, these were local kids who grew up running around in these woods. They were more comfortable here than anywhere on Earth during the day. At night, it was a whole different story. But they were determined, and they pushed on. It only took around 20 minutes to get to the junction of Route 23, and at least some civilization in the form of a stoplight and a gas station. No traffic, no signs of life as they crossed the highway and rode the hundred or so yards to the beginning of Clinton Road. If ever there was a time when Tommy Sullivan could have changed his fortunes by making a different decision, it was now. He would be afforded more chances to turn back at crucial times in this story, but perhaps none so stark and obvious as this one. If only he could have surrendered to his immature fears of the dark, his fears of the unknown and the unseen, but buoyed, perhaps, by the steady companionship of Lance. All of the decisions he might have made if he were alone were jettisoned for the thrill of adventure. As the two boys made their way quietly through the woods, they realized that they were following the flickering light of candles and the hushed whispers of what must have been a fairly large group of people. As they drew nearer, they could begin to make out the dark silhouette of the ruins of Cross Castle, and they could see the shadows moving in the candlelight. As their eyes adjusted to the new light source, they realized that one whole wall of the castle had crumbled, and as a result, they were permitted to see into the once great mansion and witness what it had become. The floorboards of the ground level had been removed, presumably salvaged years prior for the quality of the chestnut that they had been constructed from and their removal revealed a vast subterranean suite of rooms that covered fully half the footprint of the manor. It was in the center of this enormous basement that Tommy and Lance cast their gaze upon at least 25 strangely dressed adults who seemed to be preparing to partake in something completely foreign. That is, until the ceremony began and Tommy was somehow intimately familiar with what he saw. I was with a big wireless carrier for my entire adult life. My bill was huge every month, and, and I just figured, well, that's, that's just the reality. Turned out, I was being double billed, and they knew about it, and figured that that's just how I wanted my phone service, so they didn't tell me. And I get it. My responsibility, I ordered service without canceling the other service. But you think that they would have told me. So if I've learned anything, it's that there seems to always be a catch. So when I heard that Mint Mobile was offering premium wireless service for $15 a month, I instantly thought, yeah, okay, what's the catch? There's no catch. The secret sauce for Mint Mobile is that they're the first company to sell wireless service online only. No retail stores, no overhead costs that get passed down to you in the form of mystery fees. Instead, they just pass along the sweet savings direct to you. And their service is amazing. I live in Los Angeles. Their service has been loud and clear everywhere I've gone in the city. And every plan that they offer comes with unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. To get your new wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month and get the plan shipped to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com within. That's mintmobile.com within. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash within. The satanic ritual of the Black Mass can be traced back to 14th century France, where militants and subversives would perform the inverted mass as a blatant mockery of the traditional Catholic mass, considered to be the holiest of the church's rites, 
as it invokes the ultimate communion with Christ when the faithful ingest the body and blood of their Savior through transubstantiation. If the traditional Mass carries the intention of absolution of sin and the promise of a closer relationship with God, then the Black Mass calls for the celebration of sin and a complete separation from the Nazarene Christ. And it follows exactly, but in reverse, the formal order of the traditional Mass. That's why Tommy recognized what was going on and why he found it so interesting. He had participated in the Sunday Mass as an altar boy for years, not to mention wedding Masses and funeral Masses. He knew exactly what he was watching, even if he didn't understand the glaring differences. But he understood one thing very clearly. They were not celebrating God. The Black Mass they witnessed would have consisted of the following. A priest in either red or white robes, the messianic avatar in a loincloth with a crown of thorns, four attendants in hooded black robes wearing ceremonial masks, the female altar dressed as a Catholic priest until the ceremony begins when she will be stripped naked, four disciples also in hooded robes but carrying torches, and the satanic avatar, all in black, wearing a horned goat mask. In preparation for the mass, the female altar will be led to a table where she will eventually lie down and be secured at the wrists and ankles within a pentagram drawn in chalk. The air will be heavily incensed, inverted crucifixes hung on all walls, and black candles, along with torches of the disciples, giving the only light for the ceremony. After the invocation where Satan is asked to preside over the ritual, the players take their positions. We refer to the participants as players because it is highly rehearsed theater. It's a show. Regardless of the veracity of the players' convictions, it remains a stunning rebuke of the Holy Church in the form of a production that borders on farce. They even rewrote the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who was in heaven, unholy be thy name, thy kingdom here, Thy will to bear on earth, far away from heaven. Give us this night our recompense, and succor us in our tribulations. Lead us into temptation, and deliver us to pleasure. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, for us to share forever. Now enters the avatar of Satan, and with his arrival, so begins the denunciation with the first accuser denouncing the bloodshed in misery perpetrated against innocent bystanders in the Bible, all while the Nazarene does nothing to stop it. The accuser then yields to the censurer, and the denunciation continues with the humiliation of the blind followers of the imposter god, the Nazarene. The physical blasphemies of the desecration come next, and these vary wildly from sect to sect. Almost always it involves some sort of defiling and subsequent denial of the Eucharist by the attendants and the priest. The messianic avatar is then crucified upside down on an inverted cross. The crescendo of the ritual, the liberation, now comes when the crucified avatar of his own volition descends from the cross and discards the crown of thorns. He is then surrounded by attendants who drape him in robes and offer him a chalice of red wine. Prayers are then offered by the priest, imploring the children of darkness to go forth and conquer their world, casting out tyrants, both real and spiritual, 
destroying idols and symbols of power that have kept them in subjugation, and giving loud and passionate permission to engage in all pleasures of the flesh. Wine is then offered to all participants, and the ceremony comes to an end. One can only imagine the effect something like a black mass would have on a pious Catholic boy, barely 14 and severely out of his element. For Tommy, it was intoxicating, terrifying, and, at first blush, funny. Strangely enough, especially given what we know was in store for him, Tommy really didn't take any of it seriously. He viewed it as a novelty, a goof, something to hide from his parents and teachers. But most of all, he found it interesting, and that would lead to his ultimate undoing, curiosity. If Lance's interest in Satanism existed to impress an older group of people and fit in with what he deemed to be a cooler crowd, then Tommy's interest was purely academic. How long had this been happening so close to where he grew up? Did anyone else know about it? And most importantly, what was that strange and mysterious castle in the woods that was home to a secret coven of devil worshippers? His curiosity would lead down an impossibly dark and forbidding road, and the first step along the way was the basement of the Jefferson Township Public Library and the precursor to the information superhighway. Microfiche. Coming up on the next episode of The Devil Within. Tommy had been having nightmares, and these he wrote about in alarming detail. He described a great demon who was coming to collect a debt that Tommy couldn't possibly pay. But he felt trapped, bound by some ancient, mysterious contract that he was powerless to deny. These fleeting passages of coherence and relative normalcy are punctuated by a few sentences from Tommy that sent members of the clergy into a state of barely controlled panic when they were made aware of it. Tommy claimed that in the days leading up to the murder, when he looked in the mirror, he no longer saw his young face reflected back. He saw the face of a demon. The Devil Within is a Cavalry Audio production. Written and directed by Brandon Morgan. Original score by Monkey Mind Music Group. Original music by Bruce Whitkin. Executive produced by Keegan Rosenberger and Dana Brunetti. For Cavalry Audio, I'm Brandon Morgan. the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. 
Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.